Turn with me in your Bibles, if you would, to the book of Genesis. We are back in Genesis, uh, and we come to Genesis chapter 21, verses 1 through 21 this morning. And before we read that together, let's pray together. Our Father, we uh, come to you to hear from you, to rest in you, to rest in the gospel, to rest in your promises, uh, to rest in Jesus. Uh, Father, we pray that you would uh, show us Jesus this morning, that you would open our eyes and ears to hear of our Savior, uh, to rest in him and delight in him and to go out from here ready to serve him in everything that we do, knowing that our labor is not in vain. Uh, Be with us now, uh, pour out your spirit. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Genesis 21. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore him, Isaac. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. And she said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children, yet I have borne him a son? In his old age. And the child grew and was weaned. And Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, laughing. So she said to Abraham, Cast out this slave woman with her son, for the son of this slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. And the thing was very displeasing to Abraham on account of his son. But God said to Abraham, Be not displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you. For for through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman also, because he is your offspring. So Abraham rose early in the morning and took bread and a skin of water and gave it to Hagar, putting it on her shoulder along with the child, and sent her away. And she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. When the water in the skin was gone, she put the child under one of the bushes. Then she went and sat down opposite him a good way off, about the distance of a bowshot. For she said, Let me not look on the death of the child. And as she sat opposite him, she lifted up her voice and wept. And God heard the voice of the boy. And the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What troubles you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. Up! Lift up the boy and hold him fast with your hand, for I will make him into a great nation. Then God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water. And she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. And God was with the boy, and he grew up. He lived in the wilderness and became an expert with the bow. He lived in the wilderness of Paran, and his mother took a wife for him from the land of Egypt." I'm not a great promise keeper. In fact, because I know this, I just try not to make a lot of promises. 
It's not that I'm a liar, uh, don't misunderstand, uh, or even that I, that I welch on my promises per se. It's, it's just that I'm busy and it's, it's hard to keep up with everything that's going on around me. Maybe you know what that's like. Uh, life is busy. You say you'll meet someone at 6.15, uh, but life happens somewhere during the day and it turns out to be 6.20 or 6.30 or it gets so late you have to cancel the meeting altogether. Or you promise to take your kids to the park, but as the day goes on with chores and interruptions and phone calls and texts, uh, you realize it's not going to happen today. Or maybe that's not you, uh, but you've been on the other side. Uh, people make promises to you, family members or fellow students or uh, companies you work with, and then the due date comes and goes with the fulfillment of that promise nowhere in sight. It's easy to get bitter. Uh, cynical, even. The problem is we often direct this cynicism toward God. You see, we don't see the fulfillment of his promises either. Uh, We don't see Jesus risen from the dead. We don't see our sins forgiven. We don't see all things being made new. Peter tells us that scoffers will come in these last days and they will say, 2 Peter 3, 4, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. See, we wonder, where where are God's promises? Where is the return of Jesus? Where is the new heavens and the new earth? Where is our new life as Christian people? And if God's promises aren't certain, well, Paul says, if Christ is not raised, your faith is in vain. If God's promises aren't certain, eat and drink and be merry for tomorrow you die. If God's promises aren't certain, uh, you're right to despair. Uh, You are right to give up. And you are right to look out for number one because this life is all you've got and you better make the most of it. Well, here's what we're going to see this morning. God's promised inheritance is sure. Therefore, you have reason to persevere in joy and persevere in hope and persevere in love. God's promised inheritance is sure. Therefore, you have reason to persevere in joy and hope and love. First, God's promised inheritance is sure. Uh, Finally, after years of waiting, uh, at least 25 years after God had promised, and after a lifetime of barrenness and the sadness and reproach that came with that, Finally, verse 1 says, The Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. Uh, Now, for us, it has only been seven months since I preached through Sarah's barrenness in Genesis chapter 11, but even that feels like forever. Can you imagine what it was like for Sarah herself? God had fulfilled his promise. He had finally done what he said he would do. The child of promise came. This is is no insignificant thing, right? The book of Genesis is focused on the promised child. Uh, Back in Genesis chapter 3, you may remember, after the serpent tempts Eve to declare her autonomy and disobey God, God curses the serpent in Genesis 3.15 and says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And we've been looking for this promised child as we've been reading through the book of Genesis, the one who would come and defeat the serpent and bring reconciliation and restore peace to the world. 
In fact, Noah's father, you may remember Noah's dad, Lamech, seemed to think it would be him. It would be Noah. And so he named his son Noah, which means rest. And he said, out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. And Noah had an important part to play, but he wasn't the one to come. And as the story progressed, it began to focus in on Abraham and Sarah, a childless couple. And God made Abraham great big promises. Abraham would become the father of many nations, and and God would give him a land, and God would bless him, and all nations would be blessed in him. But all of these promises depend upon the barren woman giving birth. These promises, which clearly extend beyond Abraham's lifetime, can never be fulfilled if Abraham remains childless. It all depends upon this child. Uh, Stephen put it like this in Acts chapter 7, verse 5. He says, uh, Yet God gave Abraham no inheritance in the promised land, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. You see, it all depends upon one child, the child of promise. If God doesn't come through here, all is lost. But if he does, if God can cause the barren to give birth, he can bring about the rest of his promises as well. If God demonstrates his power in causing barren Sarah to conceive and bear a child, though she is about 90 years old and Abraham is 100, then in so doing, God demonstrates his power to bring life out of death and so proves that he has the power to bring about what he has promised. And so God does just that. He he causes the barren woman to conceive. He brings life to Sarah's dead womb. He proves himself to be the creator God, the one who has the power of life in his hands. And just imagine what this would do for Abraham and Sarah's faith, right? They they had waited so long for God to fulfill this promise year after year after year. And to fulfill this one promise is to give evidence and hope that all will be fulfilled, that God is faithful and he will bring about everything that he said. Now, Isaac is not the child of promise, right? He's not the seed of the woman who will crush the head of the serpent. Oh, God, God used and uses his people to put down evil throughout history, but by the end of Genesis, we're actually still looking for the child. Isaac is just one link in the chain. Now, we just celebrated the coming of that child, the child. Jesus' birth was strikingly similar to Isaac's. God foretold it beforehand to both parents, Mary and Joseph, Uh, The child was named as God instructed, uh, this time through the angel Gabriel. And Jesus' birth was celebrated as the fulfillment of God's promises to Abraham. Once again, God brought life where there was none. Not because Mary was barren, but because Mary was a virgin. Again, God proves himself to be the creator God, the one who has the power of life in his hands by bringing life to an otherwise empty womb. Jesus is the seed of the woman who came to crush the serpent's head. Uh, The serpent, the devil, bruised Jesus' heel, as it were, at the cross. But in an ironic overturning of fortunes, what seemed to be Satan's greatest victory became his downfall. And God again brought life out of death in Jesus' resurrection. Jesus is the offspring of Abraham, the child of promise. As Paul puts it in Galatians 3.16, Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring, It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. 
Jesus is the promised child. Uh, Isaac was just a picture of what was to come. And Jesus was born not by the power of the flesh like Ishmael, but by the power of the spirit like Isaac. And yet, as we read through the New Testament, Christians too are born by the spirit. Uh, Paul says in Galatians 4.28, Now you, brothers like Isaac, are children of promise. Uh, We're not born exactly like Isaac or exactly like Jesus, of course. But the Spirit uses the Word of God to cause us to be born again spiritually. As Peter puts it in 1 Peter 1.23, he says, You have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding Word of God. By the power of the Spirit through the new birth, we become children of promise, born not of natural means, but born of the Spirit. As Jesus said in John 3, 6, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. And so, brothers and sisters, if if you have come to faith in Christ, that means that you have been born again by the Spirit. That faith is a gift of the Spirit, and so a sign of the Spirit's presence in you. And if you have the Spirit, you are a child of promise, just like Isaac. And the result is you become heirs. Uh, Paul says in Galatians 4, 4 to 7, When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive the adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. So our, our new birth, right, is just a, it's just a down payment. It's just the beginning of our spiritual inheritance. We are heirs of things to come. Ephesians 1, Paul says, In Christ you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. So you being born again as a child of promise is, is a down payment and a guarantee of the inheritance to come. Just as Isaac was for Abraham and Sarah, his his birth was the first fruits, only the beginning of all that God had promised to them. You know, the world tells us that this world is all there is, that you've got to make, you've got one shot in life and you've got to make it count. But we know better. Uh, God's promised inheritance is sure. There is more to come. The God who raised Jesus from the dead will raise us with him on the last day. The best is yet to come. So God's promised inheritance is sure. And so therefore, one, persevere in joy. Uh, Births are are typically occasions for joy, right? Not not always because uh, we live in a fallen world. Not every child is wanted. And that's part of the sad reality of life uh, on this side of the fall. Uh, But in the ancient world, especially, every child was wanted. Uh, That wasn't a sentimental reality. It it was really an economic one. Uh, Children meant labor and eventually protection and and marriage contracts and so on. Uh, Without children, one could end up and likely would end up poor and vulnerable and alone. But after 25 years of promising, God had come through. In God's time, according to God's plan, Sarah bore a son and named him Isaac. And Isaac is the Hebrew word for laughter. Uh, You may remember that both Abraham and Sarah had laughed at the idea of Sarah conceiving a bearing a child. Uh, They thought it was ludicrous. Uh, It had had been the laughter of disbelief. But not this time. Uh, Look at verses 6 and 7. 
And Sarah said, after the birth of Isaac, Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. And she said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. Right? Who would have thought, she says, who, who would have imagined? But God is faithful to his promises. And now Sarah says, God has caused me to laugh. God has caused me to rejoice. And everyone who hears will laugh over me. Not meaning everyone who hears is going to laugh at me, but laugh with me. Rejoice with me over what God has done for me. God takes the barren and gives a child. God takes the empty and brings fullness. God takes the, the, the dead. God takes Christ and brings resurrection. God takes the sinful and brings redemption. God takes the alienated and brings reconciliation. God takes the hopeless and gives hope. And our response is to laugh with joy, to rejoice over what God has done. And so the first application of God's keeping his promises is simply to rejoice in the goodness of a God who keeps his promises. Rejoice in the Lord always, Paul says. And again, I will say rejoice. God's fulfillment of his promises in Christ should bring you joy. If they don't, it's worth asking, why not? What's getting in the way? Do you really understand what God has done in Christ in redeeming and reconciling sinners to himself, in giving us the hope of the resurrection? in preparing for us an eternal inheritance in heaven. And sometimes those things, we, we, we can list them and we can think, we can sort of say that we believe them, but they're so big that the glory of them, it just goes over our heads. And so stop and consider your sin and God's mercy, your guilt and God's grace, your mortality and God's promise of resurrection life. And let the weight of your sin and guilt and death and the unbelievable nature of God's mercy, grace, and promise overwhelm you and cause you to rejoice. Again, the world teaches us that this world is all there is. And this is your one shot at life. And the, the conclusion is don't, don't persevere in hardship, right? Escape it at all costs. If you, if you want to be happy, this is your shot. You've got to escape sadness now. But it's not true, right? We can rejoice, find happiness and laughter, not, not because our circumstances are so great, but because our God is so great and his promises are so great. And he has begun to fulfill them in Christ and in his resurrection and in drawing us to himself by the Spirit. And so wrestle with God's promises until you find joy, the joy which transcends circumstances because it's found, founded on the promises of God. So God's promised inheritance is sure, and so persevere in joy. Second, persevere in hope. Uh, th there is the laughter of disbelief, and there's the laughter of joy, but there's another kind of laughter as well, the laughter of disdain and mockery. Uh, verse 8 uh, contains about three years' time in the first few words. Uh, verse 8 says, And the child grew and was weaned. And Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. Isaac grew, and, and uh, as he left infancy for childhood, he was weaned uh, probably uh, about at three years of age, as was the norm in that day. Uh, but then verse 9 says, But Sarah saw the son of Hagar the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, laughing. Notice the, the, the distance the writer puts between us and Ishmael at this point. Uh, not only is he not named, he is the son of Hagar the Egyptian, uh, and Ishmael is laughing. Why is, why is this so bad? 
Uh, first, it, it seems likely that what is meant is that, is that Ishmael is laughing at Isaac, uh, not laughing with him, not, not the laughter of joy, uh, not the laughter of disbelief even, but, but the laughter of mockery. He's laughing at Isaac, mocking him, deriding him. And the word can be used in both ways, positively or negatively. And of course, Paul tells us in the New Testament, he interprets this like this in Galatians 4.29. He says, at that time, he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, meaning Ishmael persecuted Isaac. The one born according to human means and efforts and ingenuity persecuted the one born according to God's promise. And so as Hagar had treated Sarah poorly earlier in the book of Genesis, now Ishmael treats Isaac poorly, like mother, like son. And as true and as wrong as that was, there's more going on even. Uh, Again, Isaac's name is a version of the word for laugh. So Sarah sees Ishmael Isaacing, right? Isaac is the one who laughs. But she sees Ishmael uh, laughing, playing the role of the child of laughter, as it were. And in that moment of twisted laughter, she sees the possibility of Ishmael supplanting Isaac. He is the older son, after all. Uh, and she will have none of it. So verse 10, she says, uh, cast out this slave woman with her son, for the son of this slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. Notice the emphasis is on God's covenant promises. Who is going to inherit these promises? Will Isaac inherit the promises or will Ishmael? And by his persecution of his younger brother, Ishmael, really, he forfeits the promise. You remember uh, God had said back in chapter 12, verse 3, I will bless those who bless you, And those who dishonor you, I will curse. Uh, The covenant promises for Abraham and his seed and and those who look to Abraham and his seed for blessing. But Ishmael had excluded himself from that number by mocking his brother Isaac. Again, Paul applies this scene like this in Galatians 4. He says, now you brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, so also it is now. But what does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. Uh, So step step back for a second, right? There's been a struggle uh, throughout Genesis since the beginning. The, The seed of the woman is at enmity with the seed of the serpent. Cain kills Abel. Here, Ishmael persecutes Isaac. Right? While physically brothers, they are spiritually enemies, each having a different, uh, quote, seed within them, the seed of the serpent or the seed of the woman. Ultimately, the, the seed of Satan's lies or the seed of God's promises. Their lives are shaped by either unbelief or faith, a focus on the present life or a focus on the promises of the age to come. And Jesus came to his own and his own did not receive him. He came to his brothers as well, his fellow Jews, and they rejected him. The seed of the serpent, while physical brothers of Jesus were spiritual enemies. Jesus said to some of the Judeans in his day that they were children of their father, the devil. And they persecuted him and they crucified him, putting him to death. But Jesus rose. And you see, when we face conflict in the present age, we shouldn't be surprised. Uh, This present age is full of conflict and trouble and enmity and strife in the church and outside of it. And there are two seeds, right? Those in whom the lies of the devil have taken root and those in whom the promises of God have taken root. And it's the latter that are the children of Abraham. Abraham's seed were never simply uh, physical. Ishmael was physically a child of Abraham. But in terms of the covenant, 
through Isaac would his offspring be named. Verse 12, right? The, the children of Abraham are not simply his physical descendants, but the children of the promise, those who believe. Not Ishmael, but Isaac. Uh, not the Judeans, but Jesus. Uh, not those who rejected Jesus, but the, even the Gentiles who received him. And we, too, are Abraham's seed, children according to promise. But we expect conflict in the present age. And when we experience that, we can know that this is where we are, right? We're, we live in a broken age, and we can, we can seek to resolve that. Paul says, live at peace with all men in as much as it depends on you. But our hope is not in solving all conflicts in the present. Our hope is in the age to come. When as children of Abraham, we will receive the inheritance, inherit the promises, and enter into the promised land, the new creation. When the, when the children of promise will finally dwell in the land of promise. Uh, this, this world will tell us that this world is all there is. That this is your one shot at life. Don't look forward. Don't expect something in the future. Make your best life now at all costs. But as God's pilgrim people, we have hope in the age to come. As, as we, like Abraham, look forward uh, for the fulfillment of the promises of God. So God's promised inheritance is sure. Persevere in joy. Persevere in hope. And third and finally, persevere in love. Uh, the, the point about conflict is, is, I think, obvious in our day and, and, and as it is in almost any day. Uh, there are very few periods of history not characterized by conflict of some kind. And if you can point to what looked like a golden age of peace, someone else can tell you what was going on behind the scenes at that time. Every age is an age of conflict. The question is not whether there is conflict, but how will we respond? And our first response is to put our hopes squarely on the age to come. The conflict in the present uh, need not diminish our hope for the future. Our second response, though, is a bit more counterintuitive, and that is to love our enemies. Abraham was not happy about sending Ishmael away, and of course not, right? Ishmael was, after all, his firstborn son. The father loved the son. But God told Abraham to do what Sarah said for the sake of his covenant, and because through Isaac would his offspring be named. And yet God still has a promise for Ishmael, according to verse 13. Uh, nevertheless, verse 14, Abraham rises early in the morning. He takes some bread and a water skin. He places the water skin on Hagar's shoulder. Uh, not, not the boy, as is sometimes misunderstood. The, the wording is awkward in English. Uh, but Abraham gives the bread and water to Hagar, along with the boy, placing the water skin on her shoulder. Uh, the boy, of course, refers to Ishmael there, who at this point is likely around 16 years old. Uh, that boy here doesn't mean little. Uh, and, and so they leave, wandering in the desert, eventually running out of water. They grow thirsty and weary in the hot sun. And it seems as if Hagar uh, had to even help her son walk at some point. Eventually, he's so weary, she lets him just fall under a bush. She heads about a bowshot away and sits down and weeps. Once again, though, God hears. He had heard Hagar 16 years earlier. This time, verse 17, God heard the voice of the boy, and he comes to their rescue. He tells Hagar not to fear. He, he doubles down on his promise. He shows her a well of water, and God shows his blessing to Ishmael. And notice both times uh, Hagar ends up thirsty in the desert, God hears and shows mercy. And notice, as one commentator put it, on both occasions, God shows himself willing to rescue the afflicted, even though their own behavior has provoked their persecution. Uh, Hagar had looked on contempt with contempt on Sarah, and Ishmael mocks his younger brother Isaac. They both suffer for their attitudes, and yet God is merciful. 
He, he shows mercy even though their own actions caused the trouble. And this is really important, right? When we think about uh, to whom should we show love? Sometimes people say things like, well, they, they got themselves into that mess. It's their own fault, after all. They're just getting what's coming to them. But God doesn't scold Hagar or Ishmael. He hears their cry for mercy, and he answers. With respect to the covenant, Ishmael was excluded. He excluded himself by his attitude toward Isaac. But with respect to God's benevolence, even Ishmael is an object of mercy. Uh, The covenant is particular, but God's benevolence here is general. He causes his sun to shine on the evil and on the good, Jesus says. And he sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Jesus follows suit, of course. As the child of promise, he was rejected by his brothers, but he sought mercy for his enemies. At one point in Jesus' ministry, a certain Samaritan village refused to receive him, and James and John were so offended by this that they offered to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume the village. No joke. Jesus, however, rebuked them. He taught his disciples to love their enemies and pray for those who persecuted them. And when he hung on the cross, he did just that, crying out, Father, forgive them, they know not what they do. And of course, that's what the cross was all about, right? The cross itself was Jesus seeking mercy for his enemies. All humanity is born in enmity with God, seeking to be the sovereign of our own lives, our own little substitute gods. And for that rebellion, we deserve judgment, but Jesus came to receive judgment on our behalf that we might receive mercy. And then Jesus says to those who had received mercy, love your enemies. And notice why why we can do that. The world tells us this world is all there is. You've got one shot in life, make it count. But we know better. God's promised inheritance is sure there is more to come. The resurrection is on its way. As Jesus rose, so we will rise from the dead. And yes, we should use our, our present time wisely, but not to get all we can while we can. Our good things are in the future. Rather, we use our time wisely in loving and serving others, looking for our good things in the age to come. And so let me ask you, right, what what does loving your enemies look like? And don't, don't get too particular about the word enemy. Anybody who gets in your way in life may be your enemy in the moment. And God's call is for you to love them. Whether they be your family, your fellow church members, your boss at work, another driver on the road, right? Someone of an opposing political party or of conflicting cultural values. Jesus loved his enemies to death, literally. He died for those who rejected him and wanted to replace him. How can you love those who oppose you? Sometimes it seems as if uh, Christians believe that the culture wars relieve us from the responsibility to love our enemies. That's not so. We are called to love as we have been loved. Well, faith in God's promises, trusting that there are good things to come, the inheritance is coming. It won't change the circumstances that you are in, uh, but it will change the you in those circumstances. And that is what we need to keep going. In the midst of what seems like slow promises, in the midst of often bitter conflict, believing that God's promised inheritance is sure can give you joy and hope and love to see you through. God's promised inheritance is sure. Christ has risen from the dead. Therefore, persevere in joy and hope and love. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for the hope that we have, a hope made sure because of the resurrection of Jesus. Help us to 
trust in that and rest in that and rejoice in that. And so uh, hope in things to come and love others now in light of your great love for us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.